0: Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. This week's episode of Proof is our Christmas special. And the story you're about to hear, and I'm not being hyperbolic, is amazing. I don't say that often. This story is about bread, a somewhat plain but beloved bread. It's a story about finding joy in the mundane. We're gonna take you back to Czechoslovakia during World War II, and you'll meet a man, Pop Pop, who might just be a real life superhero. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, escape, hidden compartments and suitcases, fascism, bread, ...and Christmas. I'm Kevin Pang. Veseleva noce. That's Merry Christmas in Czech. Stick around, folks. Ever get a new kitchen gadget for a tricky recipe and think, um, this is useful in theory, but none of these buttons make sense? Am I going to be able to make this from scratch? Let the Jewel Oven's autopilot feature go from proofing to baking and then baking to broiling, all with a single press of a button. The Jewel Oven is designed with 13 features, from air frying to dehydrating. And the Jewel app's step-by-step recipe guides, which include recipes from ATK, make it easier to tackle tricky dishes the first time you make them. So aim high and make that goat cheese and herb stuffed chicken with confidence. Learn more about the Jewel Oven at Breville.com. That's B-R-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. Hey folks, you already know that at Proof, we love stories that change the way we think about food. And guess what? The companies that support our show are no different. Let's take a journey to Santa Isabel, Puerto Rico to meet Vinny Marti, a mango farmer.
1: Puerto Rico, it's uh, in shape. It's like a rectangle. uh, And we have a big mountain range in the middle. When you come to the southern part of the island, you arrive into a more arid, tropical part of it. This is perfect for mango growing.
0: Despite living through devastating storms in 2017, Vinny and his team are rebuilding, and they're producing some incredibly flavorful mangoes and getting them to the rest of the world.
1: You know, after all the hard work, it's been a whole year on the farm. Happiest time is when we close those doors on the container and the container leaves for the port.
0: Stay tuned as we tell you more stories about mango farmers and chefs who use mangoes in amazing, delicious ways. Learn more at mango.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem," And over the next few weeks, I'll be talking to the people who are shaping the future of food. A Stanford scientist raised billions of dollars to make meat without animals. The mission of the company is to completely replace animals as a food technology. A kid who grew up at his uncle's pizza shop is helping family restaurants survive in the 21st century. The bottleneck isn't the pizza oven, it's the telephone, it's the telephone. And a guy who helped create the iPhone is trying to eliminate food waste by reinventing the trash can.
2: First and foremost, it has to not smell. And Uh that's a crazy thing to
0: say. You can listen to What's Your Problem wherever. Oh, come on, Jacob. You wouldn't pay an extra dollar for a Stegosaurus burger? I'd pay an extra dollar. (laughs) Does it come with fries? Sure, I'll throw in the fries for free. Reporter Hallie Bondi brings us this Christmas miracle, and by the way, we talk about war and trauma in this episode, so just wanted to give you a heads up.
1: I am so, oh my god, you're so tall.
3: Welcome to the Bondi family. We are celebrating Christmas Eve at my aunt Larissa's house in Roosevelt, New Jersey. The Bondi's have a few quirky traditions. We open presents on Christmas Eve, not day. We put lit candles or sparklers on our tree, knowing full well how, let's say, unconventional that is. And every year, we serve a traditional Christmas bread called vanyčka, which comes from the Czech word for Christmas, vanuce. Vanyčka is a semi-sweet dessert bread. It's braided, and it has raisins inside. It lands somewhere in between babka and chala in texture. Every Christmas Eve, Vonuchka sits atop a vaunted pedestal at the dessert table among the cakes and cookies. But reviews of Vonuchka are mixed at best. Here's my brother, Stefan.
0: I don't understand the appeal of that. It was like either have this semi-sweet bread or have this delicious cake or ice cream. And I'm like, well, this is not a choice.
3: (laughs) Here's me and my cousin, Max. It's pretty bland.
0: (laughs) There's not much flavor to it. Uh-huh.
3: My dad Philip, however, is a rare exception.
4: But you always liked it. Oh, fonochka. Oh, what who who doesn't like fonochka? Tell me now. Point me in their direction. What idiots.
3: I'm with the majority. Our Christmas fonochka is sort of tasteless, hard to cut into, and not much fun to chew. Throughout the years, I've always opted for the cookies instead. Still, we bake vanichka every Christmas Eve, or rather, my Aunt Larissa makes it, and even she doesn't like it.
1: I was never a big fan myself, so I had never but when.
3: For as long as I can remember, making vanichka is just what we do every Christmas Eve, but none of us really know why. We know the tradition comes from my legendary character of a grandfather, Otabandi, who I knew as Pop-Up. He'd immigrated from Prague in 1948 with his parents and sister, Hella, But we didn't understand the urgency around baking Vaniczka every year, when only a few people enjoyed it. We knew that Popop was very, very food-obsessed, and specifically, he was Czech food-obsessed. He loved it exclusively, and he only drank Czech beer, Pilsner. When he encountered other cuisines and beers, he would say, let me try and be him for a second. So, this is garbage. But Pop Up's love of all things Czech doesn't entirely seem to answer the question about vanichka. Now that I'm a mom, I want to be more intentional about Christmas traditions. What am I supposed to tell my daughter about this bread that nobody likes? Should we continue to make it? Why was it a holdout, a Christmas necessity, and the last enduring Czech dish Pop Up ever enforced in the family? every year until his death in 2011. I never got a chance to talk to Pop-Up specifically about Bonitschka, but thankfully, he wrote a 300-page, absolutely epic autobiography before he passed. I'd read it once, but in my grief of losing him, I had to skip through the darker parts of his history, Soviet communism, the Holocaust. But now, I'm ready to dive in and learn all I can about the dessert that he mandated or baked every single year of his life. Turns out, the darker parts of his story would play a huge role in the answers I found. Otta Bondi, or pop was born in Prague in 1926 to a family of successful jewelry box makers. He describes a very happy childhood, eating to his heart's content. He loved visiting his great-uncle's candy store and stuffing himself with all the German-inspired sweets he wanted. He remembers eating potato soup and something called buchti outside on his apartment steps. Buchti are yeast buns filled with jam or cottage cheese. Yum, actually. The Bandis would eat large lunches and light dinners, which is still pretty customary in the Czech Republic. Pickled eggs, cooked fruit... And dumplings, dumplings, dumplings. Sweet ones, savory ones, and everything in between. And Pop-Up started drinking beer quite early. It was a veritable smorgasbord. This is from his autobiography, as read by a Czech voice actor.
2: To this day, 70 years later, I remember every store and owner on the block, the shoemaker Mr. Kabikar. The confection store proprietor Mr. Safarik, the butcher Mr. Ledvina, and a bakery where my mother would buy homemade vanuchkas.
3: Throwing just a tiny plot twist into the mix here, the Bondis are Jewish. There were many observant Jews in Prague, and there is a Jewish quarter still. But Popov's family didn't keep kosher or observe Sabbath. Even though he was bar mitzvahed, and even though everyone liked to remind him that his great-great-grandfather was a very famous rabbi, Otto did things like attend Catholic school. The family even observed meatless Fridays, like the Catholics. And they celebrated Christmas. Dr. Martin Frantz, a Czech history scholar from Charles University in Prague, explained that pop-up secularity was fairly common for Czechs. He spoke in Czech for our interview.
4: Uh, the half, the 19th century, uh,
3: Dr. Franz said that Christmas had always been somewhat secular in the Czech Republic. But the very unique era between the world wars kicked inclusion and secularity into high gear. In 1918, just a couple of years before Pop-Up was born, Czechoslovakia became an independent republic for the first time in millennia. It was a huge deal. There was patriotism, celebration, and heavy mixing. Christians and less religious Jews became indistinguishable party animals. This was in part because the Republic leaders were pretty easy on the Jews compared to their previous Austro-Hungarian oppressors. The Republic acknowledged Jewish nationhood, for instance, and Jews played an important role in the country's economic, political, and cultural life. And Popup's family took full advantage anyone could celebrate Christmas, and they did. Also, the Czechs celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve, and they light candles in their trees. So that's where it comes from. And one of the most important traditions in a Czech Christmas is the Vanichka. According to a book called Czech Cookbook by baker and YouTuber Kristina Kotna, Vanichka hails from the 16th century when it was made exclusively for nobility, but eventually it caught on to the masses. The braided Christmas bread is supposed to resemble a swaddled baby Jesus, symbolizing fertility and new life. There are also some pagan symbols thrown into the loaf that harken way, way olden times like pre-9th century. The braids represent things like air, wisdom, water, knowledge, and earth. And the cross braiding is supposed to protect families from evil spirits. Talk about inclusion. Christina says to make it, you have to make three layers of braids out of the dough, which should have raisins in it, though us Bondis settle for two layers. There's a base at the bottom made of many braids. On the next level up, there are fewer braids, and the top, even fewer. Many people sprinkle their varnickas with almonds or other toppings. The hardest part is hoping to God that the yeast helps the bread rise in the oven, which for us is often a matter of luck. Here's Christina Kotna,
1: I don't know family who does not have this for breakfast. It's just so traditional, so amazing. And when you bake it, the smell just reminds you of Christmas. And I think for your grandfather, it was the feeling of home, something known, something beautiful, because you have this excitement of, oh, it's Christmas morning and this evening I will have my presents and it's a start of a beautiful Christmas day. So for us, it's just very important
3: Every year on Christmas morning, my great-grandmother Anna would either buy or bake vonichka with her mother Stefanka. The whole family would get a slice, including Pop-Up, Hela, pop dad Alfred, their grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Sometimes they would each get their own smaller vonichka loaves. The adults would send the kids out of the room or outside and then dump presents under the tree. When the kids came back, the adults did a lighthearted oh, Santa came, except it was St. Nicholas, sometimes Baby Jesus. It's not as serious over there. This is exactly what Pop-Up would do with us over Christmas Eve, except in America, of course, Santa is definitely real. I should mention that the Vonishkas in Christina's cookbook look much more appetizing than the Bondies, But even for her, perfection isn't as important as the tradition.
1: I know it took me many years, and I was always frustrated when the three uh, layers, they just would make, like, make it flat, they just collapsed. And I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and now my brother is like, oh, so are you sure you know how to make vanuchka? So for us it's, oh, it's, it's okay, we will still enjoy it uh, during breakfast. See, it's hard
3: to bake vanuchka. Aunt Larissa, you should feel vindicated. There are a lot of traditions associated with baking vonichka, too. According to Christina, sometimes women would jump as high as they could while baking in order to ensure that the vonichka rose. Sometimes they'd bake individual vonichkas, put coins into one of them, and whoever got that vonichka would have a lucky year. My family doesn't practice this stuff, but... I like to imagine that Pop-Up's family did back in the glorious 20s. But as we pick back up on Bondi's story, everything was about to change. In Pop-Up's autobiography, it all happened really fast. It started with some no-Jews-allowed signs at his favorite restaurants which he casually ignored. And then, in March 1939, when Pop-Up was 13, the Nazis took the city. Mother Anna had to formulate an extremely intricate escape plan for her and Pop-Up. Their journey entailed crossing through Munich, Austria, Italy, Portugal, and France. They rode on trains and secret boats, all with false passports and Gentile identities. The goal was to meet Pop-Up's father and sister, who had escaped separately to England. It was the first time he had ever left Czechoslovakia. Pop-Up had a very Pop-Up-like reaction when his mother told him about their plan.
2: I was thrilled to hear the news, mostly because I could now avoid showing my mother the worst report card I ever had, which was due to be returned with her signature the next day. The plan promised to create the greatest adventure I ever faced. That was Pop Up,
3: a prankster through and through and fiercely forward-looking given the grim circumstances. There were a lot of close calls right from the start. A German guard separated mother and son on the train, searched their bags and took all of Anna's money, but ultimately let them go. Then there was a missed connection in Munich, which forced them to stay in the heavily guarded Nazi city all night. And because they had no money that night, the amazing Anna sold stockings and other stuff from their luggage in order to buy food from the Munich station. They also bought ersatz coffee, as Otto described it, meaning it was inferior coffee, Even under siege, Pop-Up demanded a certain level of quality in his food and drink. Anna wanted to keep moving, so they walked around the city. Sightseeing, as Pop-Up called it, taking in the culture of Nazi Munich. In every single country, with the Third Reich right on their tail, he always took a little tourism walk. Just a little strolly stroll with stops for a coffee and local fare. Maybe it was their blatant nonchalance that kept them alive. By the way, he found Nazi Munich to be, quote, dreary. They hopped quickly from country to country for a month, relying on the kindness of international contacts and money that Anna had hidden in a false bottom of her suitcase. Once again, Anna nailed it. Among the many places they stayed, pop Up liked Italy okay, particularly stealing from people's fruit trees on the Riviera. But the two of them got held up there for three months because of visa issues over Christmas. For the first time in his life, there was no extended family around for the holiday. I don't know if Anna was able to cobble together a vonichka for her and pop op in a family friend's hideout that year. Whether she was able to or not, Pop-Up summed it up in his autobiography like this.
2: Christmas 1939 did not feel like Christmas.
3: The lost Christmas may not seem like a big deal in the scope of what was happening around him, but Pop-Up was still a teenager who had counted on these annual traditions. The laughter in the kitchen as his mother and grandmother tirelessly braided the Vonage Godot. Biting into the semi-sweet confection had meant that presents were on the horizon— and that he'd be surrounded by his sister, his dad, his grandfather, aunts, and uncles. Vanushka meant home. It meant safety. It meant being proud to be Czech. But in 1939, Papa and his mother were alone in an increasingly fascist Italy. He had no idea where his grandparents, aunts, and uncles and cousins were. They had all stubbornly stayed in Prague. His grandmother, Stefanka, insisted that Anna was overreacting by fleeing the Nazis. up had to accept that his Christmases and his stable, vonischka tradition were in fact very fragile, and that he and his mother had to cling proactively to their memories. The urgency around vonischka on our Christmas table started to make a lot more sense now. Four months after their voyage began, pop up and Anna were reunited with father and sister in London. It was a miracle. Seriously, their many, many lucky breaks could fill a novel. But there was a problem, apart from the Nazi bombings, of course, which were relentless. For pop up, English cuisine was unacceptable, an obligation. And to make matters worse, this little spoiled jewelry box maker's son who had lost everything had to work. As a butcher,
2: the difference between cheap ground meat and more expensive, lean ground beef was nothing more than the addition of some blood, which reddened the lean meat. It was depressing to discover that proverbially honest Englishmen cheated as much as anyone else.
3: Of course, Jews who stayed in Czechoslovakia were at this point forbidden to purchase fruit, cheese, and meat. By this time, the Nazis had occupied Central Europe, France, the Nordic territories, the Baltics, all the way down to the Greek islands. In the U.K., Jews had access to food, but there were strict wartime rations. Beginning in 1942, every individual was limited to one egg a week. The recipe of a family size vonnerchka calls for three eggs total. In order to make it, Anna or Pop-Up's father Alfred may have skipped their rations for weeks, or, you know, Anna was a networker and there were plenty of compassionate fellow Czech immigrants around. I imagine that she never missed a beat while holed up in London. Regardless, Pop-Up decided, either consciously or unconsciously, to sabotage the safe haven his parents had worked so hard to build. He had been attending a Czech language Catholic school in England. But one night, he and his knucklehead friends broke into the school chapel and drank all of the sacrament wine. They got caught and kicked out of school. On his way home from the incident, he wrote that he felt thrilled.
2: Sitting on the train on my way to London, I pondered the perfect timing of my expulsion. I could now volunteer for the army and take part in the war. At age 17 in
3: 1944, Otta joined the Czechoslovakian Army in Exile, which was based in London. He joined up with the tank division in hopes that he would take revenge on his oppressors. He didn't see much action, but he was clear about the food. After five years of foreign cuisines, Popup said he was thrilled that the army cooks were Czech through and through. The food was delicious to my taste. Pop-up also noted that he was forced to peel potatoes in the army because he was caught in bed with a nurse. Thanks for that detail, dude. And then, in 1945, it came. Otto was somewhere in Germany when he learned that the war was over.
2: I spent the entire night at a drinking party in the home of a French girl I met in the street. I was so drunk. That my only recollection is an endless flow of wine bottles moving from lips to lips. His
3: troops eventually rolled back into Prague, where the party was raging. His uniform and good looks gave him status all over the city. In pictures from his autobiography from this time, he looked like a Slavic James Dean. I wish I could say that Pop-Up had returned to his homeland and, hooray, he's reclaimed his glory days along with his fellow Czechs, tradition restored, vonischka lining the streets. But as the dust settled on the celebrations, Pop-Up noticed that his stable influx of candy and yeast buns, his childhood Christmases, his innocence, it was all lost, even in Prague. There was a Europe-wide meat shortage because the war had disrupted the supply lines and prices had inflated due to excessive demand. Pop-up had to wait on long lines for tripe soup, and many people were getting creative, using bread instead of meat, or cooking more and more with pig's blood. There were whispers about a creeping socialism. Changes were brewing once again.
0: When we return, Otabandi makes another harrowing escape. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Cooking during the holidays can be stressful. Lots of family, lots of dishes to make. So there's nothing worse than using bad kitchen tools to get the job done. Make it simple this year with OXO. Their cutting and carving board provides the perfect stability when you're carving into that roast because of the non-slip feet that keeps the board in place. You can also avoid slippage with OXO's easy-to-grip mixing bowls. Go ahead, let those younger chefs mash and stir the potatoes to perfection. And serve up the feast with OXO's steel-serving tongs. Elegant, ergonomic, and best of all, dishwasher safe. Proof listeners can get 15% off their holiday must-haves when you use the code ATK15 at OXO.com. That's ATK15 at OXO.com. Hey, Proof listeners, we've got fun news to share with all of you. We're excited to announce that we're making a new show for Amazon Freebie. America's Test Kitchen, the next generation, sees 11 home cooks from across the country working inside the ATK studio kitchens, undergoing intense culinary challenges in the job interview of a lifetime. The last cook standing will earn a starring role on America's Test Kitchen and $100,000. Celebrity host Jeannie Mai Jenkins is joined weekly by a rotating panel of your favorite ATK team members, including Dan Souza, El Simone Scott, Jack Bishop, and Julia Collin-Davison. Catch the premiere, America's Test Kitchen, The Next Generation, on December 9th exclusively on Amazon Freebie. That's Amazon's free ad-supported streaming service. And as a bonus, we're excited to also announce Amazon Freebie will host brand new ATK holiday content on their exclusive ATK streaming channel. You can watch this content and more for free on the Amazon Freebie standalone app or on many connected TVs and devices, including Fire TV, Roku, Samsung and mobile. Both Prime and non-Prime members can watch Freebie programming for free through Prime Video. And now, back to our story.
3: Popop tried to track down his old friends and relatives who'd stayed in Prague, only to learn that most of them were murdered or starved at horrible-sounding places like Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau. A couple of distant relatives escaped, but they were scattered around the world, from Brazil to Sweden. His grandmother, Stefanka, was murdered in Koldycevo a concentration camp in Belarus, just to name one. Pop-up was a greatest generation kid, so there isn't a whole lot of self-reflection or therapy trauma speak in his autobiography. But it seems he spent this particular time in a drunken fog. He was attending Charles University for law, but he wasn't studying a whole lot. Mostly he was partying and not caring about what he put into his body very much.
2: One could more than fill himself with liquid bread.
3: A.K.A. beer. Many Holocaust survivors don't talk about the Holocaust at all. pop op didn't offer any information when we were kids, but when you asked him, he'd answer you plainly, easily, in rote terms. He's wrote in his autobiography, too. Even when he lists the fates of his murdered cousins— aunts, uncles, friends, no hint of sadness or grief, just matter of fact. My family likes to say that, due to Popop's childlike consistency, he was completely unfazed by the Holocaust, and that escaping was just one big adventure. And in his autobiography, parts of his travels do feel fun. But now I'm wise enough to know that being unfazed by the Holocaust and the genocide of your family is impossible. Some part of him must have been stuck there, in Prague, in that point in time, hearing about the destruction of his city and the bottomless capabilities of evil, unable to heal, unable to grow up. Well into his elder years, he may not have used the words to talk about it, but Pop-Pop desperately hung on to the things from his sunnier childhood, and he pushed them on to us. Whether he was playing hockey with us on frozen lakes, which is a very Czech pastime, or if he was making bread dumplings or heavy cream goulash. When he was in his 80s, though, vanichka, perhaps the hardest thing to make, was the only homemade Czech food that he continued to push. Even if he did have the ability to reflect and heal back then, Popop didn't have time. Soviet communism had come to Prague by 1948. There were travel bans and food restrictions from the very beginning of the takeover. It was impossible to tell at the time just how bad things would get under communism, but great-grandma Anna's spidey sense once again tingled early. By 1948, pop somehow passed his law exams, and afterward, Anna insisted that the entire family pick up and move from Czechoslovakia the Iron Curtain was dropping, and according to all popular literature, America was free and thriving. It was hard to convince Pop-Up of anything, and he loved Prague. It was in his veins. But even the fiercely independent, disobedient, singular Pop-Up did not want his remaining family to be thousands of miles away. Him, his sister, Hella, his father, Alfred, and his mother had all endured and survived after reuniting, making them closer than ever. And the brilliant, strong Anna, who sadly I never got to meet, had never been wrong. So he went along with it. Pop-up would visit his beloved home city of Prague a couple more times over the years, but he'd never truly come back. About the ship to
2: New York, he wrote, In the dining room, the mediocre food was made even less appetizing by the pitching ride, by the rolling chopping sea. I felt queasy for about two days. On January 8th, we passed by the Statue of Liberty and landed in New York Harbor.
3: From New York, the family moved to Vineland, New Jersey, which was another directive from Anna. This one came about because a wave of about 3,000 Holocaust survivors, including a handful of Czech ones, were descending on small farmlands across New Jersey. They were there to, what else, raise chickens, thanks to guidance and supplies provided by Jewish agricultural societies. And the bondies thought, why not? We're European city slickers who know all about selling jewelry boxes. Let's get a 50-acre property, breed some chicks, sell some eggs, bing, bang, boom. As usual, though, the Bondies adapted and did pretty well in the community. But Pop-Up was not a fan.
2: In the spring, we would buy 1,200 baby chicks a few days old from a hatchery. At the end of summer, they were caught, brought in the cages inside the big chicken coops where they would spend the next two years laying eggs without ever being allowed to step into fresh air. After two years, they were sold for meat to make room for the new arrivals. This did not resemble my rosy notions of farming.
3: I've visited this property. It's now overgrown and abandoned. The chicken coop is concrete and suffocating, and that's without chickens inside. But Pop Up's life would change when he went to a party and met a beautiful young woman named Charlotte.
2: I was instantly in love. We walked out to my car, and all of a sudden, I discovered that the moon shining on America created the same magic as the one shining on Prague.
3: Charlotte is my grandmother. We call her Oma. She's a German-Jewish immigrant. Her family owned a candy store in Berlin that was targeted during Kristallnacht. Her family had escaped to New York via Cuba. She was stunningly gorgeous and was an unrivaled singer pursuing acting. Honestly, she deserves her own podcast. Oma thought Pop-Up was good-looking and charming, so she accompanied him on an egg run to Wildwood, New Jersey. And
4: I fell in love with him right away.
3: Yep, that's my 90-year-old grandma, Oma. They got married and moved to a Jewish immigrant enclave in Washington Heights in Manhattan. They would have two kids, my dad, Philip, and Aunt Larissa. Did you know anything about Czech culture before you married Papa? No. What did you think of Czech people, Czech culture, the language? (laughs) Well, they were right. And here's my Aunt Larissa prodding Oma into talking about Vonichka. They celebrated Christmas in Vineland, and Anna apparently taught Oma how to make it.
1: I don't remember you making vanitschka. Only father made vanitschka, right? No, I made vanitschka. You did? Of course I did. All right, how- definitely. My mother in law was a very good cook. Oh, she just talked you through it? Yeah. Why did Grandma make a Christmas? vanuchka when they're Jews. They celebrate all all Christian holidays. But do you have any idea
3: why? No. Like the rest of us, Oma didn't ask questions, but she was slowly indoctrinated into the fold. She made all kinds of Czech food, including dumplings and tripe, and it was often a source of tension. Pop-Pop would poke at her constantly, telling her that she needed to make the vanuchka just like his mother did. Perhaps he really was picky about Vanishka for a time, but he also loved getting a rise out of Oma, and he was too immature to ask nicely.
1: Oh my God, did he
4: drive me crazy.
3: (laughs) Popop worked in New York to support his family. He had a clerical gig in a meat house near Columbia University. He later went to Columbia, learned English, and earned a degree in general studies. He eventually became an accountant at an auditing firm in the garment district. But he always had one foot in Prague. Popov voraciously read Czech newspapers about the communist takeover, the political assassinations, the bans on travel. The news was grim, and going back to live in Prague was becoming a very distant dream. In New York, there were pockets of Czech immigrants, restaurants, and delis at this time. So Popup could find some like-minded folks and delicious food there. But soon, the cultural severance would be complete. He got a job at Johnson & Johnson in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The family moved to the suburb of East Brunswick. There were very few Czechs there. There weren't even many Jews. Across the U.S., some restaurants, bakeries, and even fully committed Czech villages still exist today. But they're more of an oddity than a staple. And it would be a challenge to find Ványčka because it's so seasonal. Between the beginning and end of communism, Czechoslovakia didn't change much. It was unable to bring culture in or put much out, frozen in time. I imagine that, for Pop-Up, seeing this happen only increased his resolve to keep the tradition of Vonnichka alive. Pop-up did visit Prague again, one time with Oma in 1965, and then again with my brother Stefan and my dad in 1990. My brother says that Pop-up was absolutely gleeful there. He mostly showed them places where he'd gotten blotto drunk and into trouble, but the dates are actually significant. In 1965, Czechoslovakia was still in the grips of communism. Here are some of Pop-Up's notes from that trip.
2: We did not see a single beggar. There was virtually no crime. Healthcare and schools were free. Sick leaves were generous. They would get weeks of vacation. Pay is low, but so is the pressure on workers. Restaurants serve meals for low prices, but if you want food after work, you are forced to stand on a long line. I began to wonder whether I would have been better off if I stayed in 1948.
3: Of course, he hadn't been experiencing the extreme control and fear tactics of the Soviets, for example, the searches of homes the Stalinist show trials, or the invasion of communist troops in 1968 in which tanks crushed peaceful protesters during the Prague Spring. In Pop-Up's second trip in 1990, Czechoslovakia had been freed from communism only the year before, after a 42-year grip.
2: Politically, the mood of Prague residents was accelerating. A new freedom of expression went hand in hand with the many benefits of communism. Food and rent were cheap. Healthcare was free. There was no crime. But there was a sense of missed opportunities and lost time.
3: Zdenek Polreich, a premier chef and restaurateur in Prague, lived
4: through it all. Czech cuisine was in quite some long, long period of isolation from the rest of the world, and it, it has grown really old-fashioned. And I think that, let's say, modern times, they are not really favorable for the Czech food because it takes a lot of time to cook, a lot of time to prepare. You know, it was like, it's a lot of stews, quite heavy, substantial sauces, a lot of animal fat, roasts, it's tasty, no doubt, but uh, we're not very strong on vegetables.
3: Traditional Czech food doesn't
4: seem to be
3: very healthy. So you
4: think it's not as healthy as, as, as a proper juicy Five Guys burger.
3: I definitely deserve that. At home in New Jersey, all Pop-Pop could do about the losses and powerlessness was to push Czech cooking in his New Jersey home, where my brother and I would visit dozens of times per year. The hot Czech stews and stuff would show up sometimes, but they carried a sad Eastern bloc vibe for us naïve, optimistic Americans. The vanichka, however, brought joy, whether or not we ate it or just laughed about it. I've been thinking a lot about the Czech state of mind, which I will never truly know, of course, since I was born in the Bronx. But the Czechs of the 20th century were a very battered people. According to many studies, battered, traumatized people lose touch with their sense of self, putting them in a sort of vulnerable default mode until they find a safe ground from which to thrive. Otherwise, they become stunted, trapped in time. I believe that my grandfather lived a great deal of his life in a traumatized default mode, which made him almost chameleon-like. He was a Jew, but also a Christian. He was a clandestine refugee with a passport belonging to someone else. He was a butcher. He was a British boy, an Italian boy, a soldier, a chicken farmer. He had transformed himself from a rudderless exile who spoke almost no English into a secular, successful American grown-up with a wife and kids in the suburbs. But there was a time, long ago, when he did feel safe, secure, happy, and consistent— and it was during Christmas in Czechoslovakia in the 1920s and early 30s when everyone he knew was still alive. It was when his family was united and happy. Pop-Up didn't tell us exactly why he insisted on Bonichka every year. It was just a given. But now I see it was a feeling that he could never really have again, but one he couldn't let go of. And all of these dualities from his identity are all wrapped up. Sort of in the way vonneczka is a combination of many Czech traditions. Pop-up told us that we weren't allowed to put butter on our vonneczka slices, even though it might have helped, to be honest. This, as I learned, was a quirky pop-up thing, not a Czech thing. The Czech cookbook recommends butter, but maybe he didn't want it to be tainted. In 1994, pop Up had his first heart attack. He survived, but it scared him. He became a strict vegetarian and began making vonichka with whatever low-cholesterol, low-fat replacement was available back in the 90s. Margarine, maybe? It became even less appetizing for the rest of us. But he still made it every single year until he died of a second heart attack while riding his bike at age 85. His tombstone reads... Here
2: lies Otabonde, born in Prague, died on his bike. Nobody played harder. My
3: aunt Larissa took over the Vonichka baking. Only two people claimed to love it, my dad and my uncle. But now, the dessert table, I think, would just look empty without it. Oma died in July 2022. Our interview was her last cogent conversation. He missed it
1: there. Oh, he missed it terribly. I still have a Czech flag in front of my house. I noticed that. Did you notice that? Mm Mm-hmm,
3: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you have some Czech pride too. (laughs) (laughs) The proud German didn't say yes, but she did note, somewhat inaudibly in the recording, that this was their second Czech flag.
1: So now that it's scalded, I'm adding the butter, which I guess will melt into it. Okay. And the sugar. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: me and Larisa making vonichka, using a recipe that Pop Up wrote out by hand before he died. It includes putting sticks into the dough and then placing it into a warm room to proof. Here's Kristina Kotna on why he
1: probably wrote this. Czech Republic gets very cold. So you have to keep it in a warm place. So that's why he said that, because without uh, having it somewhere near some heat source, it will not rise properly.
3: Aha, should have asked her first. Well, after baking it for what seemed like an eternity, it barely rose and it tasted like, well, raw dough. Mm, Raw dough. In the middle. The ends are okay. It's a pretty...
0: Land taste. I mean, I don't dislike it. I'm, I'm, I'm going back for another piece. Stay away from the middle. <laughs> no. Oh, no. oh, wow.
1: <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's a
3: shame. Pop-Up never got to see today's Prague, which is part of the European Union and kicking tourism, but it's rapidly changing. Here's Chef Polreich.
4: Well, the Prague restaurant scene has been developing really quickly. It's really fast and a lot of things are changing. We used to be very traditional, but since let's say some five years ago, I think we are really experiencing the big change. I think Prague scene is offering about 65 different national cuisines. So we're we're sort of getting there.
3: Pop-Up might have grumbled about all the internationalization if he knew about it, but he'd still have plenty of traditional meals to choose from. And if it meant being in Prague and feeling like it was okay to be in Prague, he may have been more amenable. Overall, I don't know what Pop-Up would have thought of this episode. I imagine during the sadder parts, he'd say something to me like, So serious. But I do want him to know that we've heard him loud and clear. The Vonachka stays. And just one more twist for this Christmas Eve 2022. For the first time in Bondi history, a non-Bondi will be baking it. It's my Iowa-born Methodist mother, Linnell, who has also been indoctrinated into the fold, perhaps reluctantly at times. And she is a very, very good baker. So I'm not sure what Pop-Up would think about the Iowan in the family taking up this sacred tradition. I'm just used to baking things that I'm sure he's never eaten before and never even heard of, like pecan pie and apple pan dowdy. (laughs) But Bonnicka seems pretty complicated to me, but I'll do my best. And maybe I'll sneak in a little flavor along the way, some... Lemon zest or a little bit of nutmeg, maybe. And if anybody wants to toast it and put butter on it and maybe even a little jam, it's okay by me. Maybe this year, I'll give it an honest try.
0: Thanks to Hallie Bondi for bringing us today's story. And a quick programming note, Proof will be back in January with our season finale about Chicago's most famous sandwich, Italian beefs. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters.
4: I'm Yumi Araki
0: the managing producer. I'm executive producer Keitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence
3: Johnson and I'm the associate producer.
0: I'm Alex Curran-Cartarelli
2: and I'm also an associate producer. I'm
0: Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton, Scoring, mixing, and sound design by
4: Anya Gjeshik,
0: And additional engineering by David Bowman. Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson.
1: Ken Margolis.
0: Is our director of post-production. And our director of production is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to Zedetnik-Polreich, Christina Kotna, Professor Franz, and the whole Bondi family who'll be listening to this on Christmas Eve. Thanks also to Gabe Vaughn at Littletown Studios for making Hallie sound pristine. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen and Jackie Ford is the Interim CEO of America's Test Kitchen. Thanks to our sponsors Kohler, OXO, Sengoku, The Mango Board, and Breville. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.